صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Good morning, Robert. How are you doing? No, so I'm very, very well. Thank you very much. Good morning, listeners. And what have we got on today? I know we've got a very, very exciting guest that uh, you and I know very, very well. We've got one of our dear and most special friends, Associate Professor Dr. Peter Slezak from the University of New South Wales. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Nasa. Good morning, Robert. Thanks for having me on. Good seeing you again. Likewise. Slash hearing from you. Yeah, um, well, I can <laughs> see you through the screen. <laughs> Peter, we've been asking um, our most recent interviewees, just how they came to Palestine. Can you take us through your Palestine journey? How did you get to here? Look, it's an interesting question to try and figure that out. Um, if I think backwards, I think one relevant thing to say, given that I'm Jewish, um, I was sort of lucky that um, I was brought up in a household that um, wasn't Zionist particularly. They weren't anti-Zionist. My parents were Jews that were Holocaust survivors. Half of my family were in Israel. In fact, um, it's relevant to say that my mother's cousin, my closest family that was still here in Australia, he was the head of the JNF in Australia for many years, the federal head of the JNF. I've got a picture yeah. of him with, with uh, Ben-Gurion. So I had this sort of family that had uh, good Jewish and Zionist credentials, but my parents, for example, never sent me to uh, summer camp and I thought I was missing out. They were always Zionist summer camps that all my friends went to. So I, I didn't get the Zionist indoctrination when I was a kid. I was just left alone. In fact, I still remember vividly a school friend of mine who was a very Orthodox Jew when we were about 12. I've written about this in an autobiographical piece. He asked me, am I Zionist? And I was embarrassed. I had no idea what it meant when I was 12. So, um, uh, I mean, I can answer him now a few years later. Yeah, yeah. And the answer is no. But um, so, so that was one part of it. But if it, more positively, how I came to it, because I didn't have the prior prejudices and the indoctrination, I started reading, I mean, when I was a kid, I first read Bertrand Russell that opened my mind to a more liberal, humane view of the world. And then, I mean, to cut a long story short, inevitably, uh, because I started studying Chomsky's work, um, I started to read alternative views of, of Israel and Palestine from the one that we all grew up with. And uh, it was starting to bother me that uh, there were these alternative uh, accounts. And the further I read his references, um, as you can now understand, um, a whole different world opened up about what had happened, which already long before Chomsky and Finkelstein and these critics was already being discussed by some Jewish historians like Lenny Brenner and various others um, and other uh, journalists. And so I started to see an alternative and I wasn't resistant to it in the sense that I didn't uh, feel that uh, these had to be somehow crazy. So uh, increasingly, partly because I was studying Chomsky's work, I also got caught up in reading his political work. And, and it was part of a broader uh, understanding of the world. I mean, he was very important in the um, resistance to the Vietnam War and later East Timor, and I got caught up in that activism. So inevitably, my path went, um, and part of it, I should say, is I ended up dropping out. I was kicked out of Sydney University for failing too much in those days because I was interested in too many other things. But that led me to, it led me to a kind of a, a path to, to, to the New South Wales University where 
it was during the 60s and I was caught up in the anti-war Vietnam stuff. And so while all my friends went off and did medicine and law and became successful professionals, and this was the Jewish community, friends I grew up with, I ended up with this radical lefty crowd and my view of the world was clearly influenced by those sorts of differences. And to this day, uh, they're all hanging out together and uh, pro-Israel and, uh, and, and strongly Zionist for the most part. So, so that's the short version of it, I guess. Great story. Yeah, great story, and we, we love you being on our team anyway. Now, Peter, the main reason we've got you on here, we've had a seminal piece, uh, Peter Beinart, who arguably is, you know, Jewish Zionist royalty, you know, the most august, perhaps, Jewish uh, journalist in America. He's a professor. He's written a 7,000-word treatise on the one-state solution. Yeah. Now, before we ask for your comments on the piece, I mean, the reality, and, and you've had to suffer this, he knew what was coming. I mean, it took a huge amount of courage and we don't want to underestimate the importance of the piece, but, you know, the Anti-Defamation League's gone, called him a capo, Dershowitz calls him a Nazi. That's right. It's no small feat to step out in the first instance. Yeah. Yeah. Look, uh, and also uh, I should add that he wrote a short version in the New York Times because the first one was in the Jewish uh, uh, magazine. And that's very important, which I'll get back to because I think that's what's important about his impact. Uh, but the New York Times piece has also had a huge uh, impact. Um, can, can I just ask on Peter Beinhart, so you know our listeners might be uh, interested, was, has he been anti-Palestinian no, or no. has he been just pro-Israel with it? Uh, it's a good question. He's certainly not anti-Palestinian. You can read what he's been saying for very many years. It's just that he was very Zionist and he was, I mean, very Jewish. I mean, he's yep. a good Jew and a good Zionist, and 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 um, as Nasser said, he was kind of royalty in the sense that he, I mean, he still prays every day. He does all of the Jewish rituals. This is something I want to come back to to explain his importance because I think a lot of, I mean, mm. uh, I think a lot of Palestinians haven't understood. I can see from online, um, uh, they have some good reasons to be angry, but I think they're missing what has been the importance of Bayanar. But but it's because he's been um, uh, absolutely outstandingly committed Jew and Zionist. Um, so, but, but, but he has long ago um, not spoken uh, harshly of the Palestinians. It's just that he hasn't, he never went far enough. In fact, today, if we're jumping ahead a little bit, one of the questions I was saying to one of my Jewish friends is, I mean, okay, he's, he's taken a very significant step, but you might ask, what took you so long? You know, so if you want to be critical, of, but I don't want to be critical of Bayonard. I mean, given who he is and where he's coming from, um, he's not where I am. He's not where a lot of Jews that I've mentioned are like, Finkelstein and, uh, and Chomsky and Amira Haas and, uh, you know, Gideon Levy and I can name, you know, a dozen that are uh, much further along in this pro-Palestine. Uh, um, it's a journey, violence. isn't it? Uh, but, but so, so he, let me give you another example. When he came to Australia many years ago, what's interesting is when we bring out, you know, with our, our various solidarity groups, speakers, Jewish or Israeli, the Jewish community never comes to those speakers because they know that they're coming, you know, from a certain point of view. But Beinart came out many years ago, brought out by one of the Jewish organizations, and he got a big Jewish audience. And he didn't speak at the time about BDS, but he was asked about it. And he said a couple of very important things which he's talking about today. So he said, look, what do you expect of the Palestinians? When they resorted to violence and suicide bombing, you condemned them, and rightly. And he says, now they resort to peaceful, you know, nonviolent resistance, to popular resistance. Now, how, can you, how dare you criticize them? Now, mm. that was an interesting thing to say especially to a Jewish audience about BDS, which is still a red line for Jews. He was sympathetically showing that, and today he talks this way in that article, the Palestinians are showing 
what is not anti-Semitism. He's saying this is typical of national liberation movements. You know, this is a, a resort to, to the kind of um, freedom struggle for, for rights, which you can see in other cases around the world. This is a very important point to be making, partly because the Jewish community have so demonized Palestinians, and he points that out, mm -hmm. he knows better than anyone. So, so in answer to your question, he's certainly, on the contrary, I mean, one of the things I think is very significant is that he quotes the Palestinians he's been reading and he's friends with, yeah. Ali Abunima and um, Edward Saimi and uh, others. This is very important because he's now um, uh, giving voice to their concerns. And he speaks in the, what's interesting is that um, your question is a very interesting one because he talks about the Jewish roots of, of understanding of the Palestinians and the empathy and, and their rights and their being human beings. It's, it's, we think this is just obvious and, and it shouldn't have to be said, but coming from him, it has to be said. And um, he, he talks about how in, in the Jewish tradition, he makes that remark about how um, we have to be uh, kind to the strangers in our midst because we were strangers once in Egypt. This is a famous line in the Old Testament. And having to say that to, to Jewish audiences, I think is very important. Yeah. You spoke a moment ago about the concern amongst the Palestinian community, and we'll, we'll come that come to that in a second. Yeah. The reality is, as I met, said, he's, he's Jewish Zionist royalty. His yeah. voice is so magnified because of that stature. Exactly. Um, and, and that's where the importance is, and that's where, whether it's the 7,000 words in the Jewish Chronicle or 1,500 words or whatever it was in the New York Times, mm -hmm. the impact of that into the Jewish community, I mean, when you and Anthony Lowenstein, et cetera, you know, came out, you, you faced the barrage. Are you seeing anything, some shoots, green shoots here or in America? Oh, yeah. Look, um, I was going to mention, uh, I, I have alongside me, one of the things that's interesting in relation to Beinart is a book that uh, Norman Finkelstein wrote. I can't remember the date, but it's maybe five, ten years ago. I can't I can check in a minute. But the book is titled Knowing Too Much. And the subtitle is The American... Uh, why the American Jewish romance with Israel is coming to an end. Now, Finkelstein wrote this years ago, and his point was, knowing too much, the Jewish community in America especially, this was written in 2012, um, they're mainly Democrat voters. They're progressive, as we say, on everything but Palestine, but they are progressive. They're at the forefront of the civil rights movements and, um, and, and other important uh, human rights concerns. And as Bynard is aware, and we're very well aware, maybe some people don't realize, the Jewish community really have no idea about, firstly, from 48, what happened. They've got no idea about 67. That's why some of the historians like uh, Ilan Pape and, and even Benny Morris and others are important. So he, uh, um, Finkelstein is pointing out, they're starting to find out and they can't reconcile it with their progressive values generally. In Australia, there are signs, Beinart, for example, was the subject of discussion at a synagogue here by one of the more progressive rabbis. Um, and they've got even, they've even had uh, Abdul, uh, uh, Isaac Abdul Hadi come to the synagogue. Um, mm. um, one of our Palestinian friends, um, um, Hilmi Daba, was invited. I was pleased to be um, part of uh, organizing that to a synagogue, uh, another synagogue in Sydney. So there are signs not from the leadership, mind you, not from the Executive Council of Australian Jewry or the Jewish Board of Deputies or the Zionist organisation, but the ferment inside the Jewish community is evident. And Beinart is an important uh, boost to those um, uh, dissenting uh, opinions and, and discomfort that people are starting to feel because they're starting to find out, believe it or not, uh, what they haven't known about how, things are, how bad things are. That's quite a phenomenon, by the way, how they can remain right. 
But that's, that's part of the reality. Well, it's a crack in the dam, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And by now, it's the biggest uh, impact. Uh, um, I mean, look, you can see, you made the point a moment ago, even Beinart is dismissed, of course, straight away by people like Dershowitz. I was just watching an interview with him. Just, just vitriolic, just malicious. He's dismissing Beinart and, and, and actually called him a Nazi. Well, yeah. I mean, this is so crazy. Did, so, did he go as far as calling him a Nazi? Yeah, yeah, he does. He, he, he used the word, uh, he's recommending the uh, final solution. I mean, those words. Oh, you know, my God. Yeah, no, he used that. And, and this interview on one of these Jewish um, uh, online programs, I mean, he just like loses it completely. He's just over the top. He's so crazy. But this is very significant. And and so, as Nasser was pointing out, other dissenters, uh, and, and I experienced that as well, they're immediately cast aside as being crazy or self-hating or something. And so the Jewish community is protected from taking them seriously. We're banned from speaking, as I've been rather proud of having been banned from <laughs> annual Good conference. Years. After I spoke there a couple of times, they decided there was a red line, which was BDS and so on and so on. But, but you see, uh, um, Finkel's, what's his name? Uh, Beinart is harder to, to, um, to, to dismiss that way because he's been a good Jew. He's been a good Zionist. I never was. You know, a lot of the dissenting uh, figures, they've got good Jewish credentials or like Finkelstein Holocaust parents and like uh, Ilan, well, like Ilan Papa, Gideon Levy and, and Amira Haas. They've been, been sidelined and Beinart is too hard to, to plausibly uh, dismiss. Yeah. And, and, and he, because look, you know, he speaks from the heart about his Jewishness. He, he speaks of love. And he speaks of his love for the Jew, in spite of the, the, the flack that he's been getting, he, he understands it. And, and he, he even says in his article that he knows that this is like spitting in the face. He says, that's his words it, it, into the, the Jews that he loves. And he wants to speak in ways. Now, I never spoke like that. I mean, you know, I, I have much less feelings of that sort, you know, um, but he cares about his Jewishness and, and the, his Jewish roots. So that's why he's, he's, he's um, harder to do. Yeah, he starts the article with Yavnir, you know, a Jewish case. You know, yes, he, yes. it goes back hundreds of uh, millennia. Yes. One of the things that interestingly he talks about in the article is the, the concept of the Holocaust lens. That's right. That's right. That's and because the dehumanization <laughs> of the Palestinians is such that every Palestinian is vilified as being a rampant anti-Semite. That's right. And that the only reason we've got a challenge with the Jews is because they're Jews. That's completely right. dismissing the whole concept of a settler colonialist enterprise. That's right. That's right. And the power of his voice into that community, humanizing us and saying, well, hold on a second, 20% of the population of Israel as it is today mm-hmm. are Palestinian. That's the right. statistics on terrorism or violence of those is significantly less than everybody else's. Well, it's practically zero. That's right. And, and so you say, when there's that political engagement and you humanize them and they're part, part of the society, that's what you get. That's right. That's exactly right. That's a very important point he makes. And I, I'm always embarrassed to, to uh, repeat or to emphasize the point that you've made, but I think it's important for people outside and Palestinians to understand the degree to which there's a racist, um, supremacist hatred from, from the Jews of the Palestinians. They've been driven into this awful... I mean, Israel is awash with, with a kind of racist stuff. You only see these vox pops that they do. And, and, and kids in the street and others will say we should just drop a bomb on them all. And um, uh, it, it's actually terrifying. And I think, frankly, that's one of the biggest problems of Beinart's um, ideal of a binational state. It's, it's the attitudes of, of the Jews through their education. Um, the wonderful Israeli uh, woman, 
Um, I think, Robert, you talked to her, Nurit uh, Alhanan Khaled. Yes, she, she was fantastic. Yeah, and um, you did a very good interview with her. She said some great stuff. Um, she looks at the education of, of the Israelis and how deeply they're, they're, they're caught up in this um, demonization of the Palestinians. That's a serious issue. I mean, one example which we've all uh, experienced, when you travel in the West Bank, you know, there's that great big red and white sign that says, this is dangerous, it's, you know, the, the area... Yeah, it's illegal for Palestinians to enter under Israeli laws. Yeah, to come in and, and you're in fear of your life there. And, and I was very pleased when I was traveling around there with the filmmaker who was making a bit of a documentary. Everywhere I went, I was, he was pleased to introduce me as a professor of philosophy, but also as a Jew. And I got the most <laughs> wonderful reactions there yeah, and we yeah. filmed some of that. And, and I keep telling people that you have to understand, because every Jew thinks that if they're going to go into the Palestine, the West Bank, I mean, they're going to be murdered. And um, I've got a wonderful scene in that where I deliberately went into a barber shop. I'd had a shave that morning, but I, I thought it'd be a lovely visual gag. I'll have the, the barber give me a shave and, and he's got the, 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 the big blade on my neck. And I made a joke <laughs> saying, you know, this, I thought this might be my last moment in Palestine, you know, <laughs> after I'd been introduced as a Jew. I mean, look, it's obviously a joke because- Let's go. You have to you have to be there to find the enormous one. And look, of course, if you come in an IDF uniform, that's a bit different. But um, at the at the demo I was at in Bilain, um, most of the people there were actually Jews. They'd come across these yeah. come across to join the demo on that Friday. And so, but you see, this is the I, once we went, the first time I was there, I, we were in um, East Jerusalem, and we met um, um, Ruth Pollard, who had been a very good journalist from from there. And she said something to me. She said, "Look, you know, the Jews, the Israelis are all." frightened uh, they're fearful of the palestinians they're all going to be murdered and i said it's bullshit and she said yeah it's bullshit but they, it's true so in other words this fear of 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 that's um, been whipped up and as you said they've all been made to think that they're all nazis now now Beinart is talking about that he, he's he's talking about the need to humanize the palestinians this is not a small uh, task but i think it's very important and you see that here in the diaspora too you 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 can't um, I mean, they don't know Palestinians. They've never talked to any. So that's the way prejudice works. It's so important for that he does it. I want to emphasize as much as I can. He's actually speaking to Jews that we've never had a chance to speak to, Peter. That's right. That's the secret. And, and that's the that's power of this message. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and he'll say to them in the article, you know, um, in fact, at one point he said, look, when you've got views about what the Palestinians think, have you ever asked one? You know, talk yeah. to one, you know. <laughs> Um, so, so yeah, I, I think this is important. Um, he has a, a, an audience. In fact, I, I, there was a, a, a thread in, in, um, on Twitter, which I, I copied out, and he, he makes the important point, we'll perhaps come back to the, the point we've mentioned about the Palestinians' reaction to him. He understands that, of course, that there's a, a sort of, there was a kind of a, a frustration with him, to put it no more strongly. But he makes a point among the others he made in this thread, he says, look, there, there's a, he first of all explains that, of course, the Palestinian voices have been suppressed and they've been mm. you know, marginalised and so on and so on. But he makes the point that, firstly, he was, he's uncomfortable about the fact, I'll, I'll read it, he says, the problem persists and in some ways has been magnified by the attention I've gotten for making an argument about one. So he understands that he mm. way, uh, magnified this, this fact that it's a Jew that's speaking and the Palestinian voices have been neglected. But he says, look, there is a legitimate role for intra-Jewish conversations in Jewish spaces, like the one I'm doing today. And that's, I think, the point that we know that nobody wants to listen to Ali Abu Nima or Yusuf Munaya or, you know, or-, or Well, he, he's just, they're just not gonna get the platform into a, a synagogue, whether it be progressive or otherwise, or- yeah, that, That's right. And to his credit, 
to his credit, Beinart points out he has for a long time been advocating, um, he, I'll read a bit more, he says, I've spoken about this problem repeatedly, especially to Jewish audiences, in virtually every talk I implore listeners to read, to listen to and interact with Palestinians. So, you know, I give him credit for this. He, he, he's not just, as, as some, I think Palestinians haven't understood it, they were sort of angry with him, you know, um, and, and I think they kind of, they were right about the concern of being marginalised, but, but, but Barnard is doing something that, that nobody else could have done. Yeah, no question. And, you know, I, I'm guilty. The first thing, you know, I remember reading the article, being amazed at its power and its, you know, the strength of it and just, and his courage. I mean, I know to just the struggle that he must have gone through having heard bits and pieces from, um, you know, Jewish friends. Mm. But, you know, my first reaction was, but we've been saying this for years. That's you know, whether, right. whether we had Diana Butu out here, whether we've had Nora Arakat, we've had, you know, Absolutely. Palestinians galore, Ali Abu Nima, Sari Makdasi, you know, we've had that many Palestinians in Australia, and I know many of them have come from the States yes. speaking to this, but here we are, suddenly a white Jewish boy says it, and boom, you know, New York Times, boom. That's right, that's right. And, and But of course, you, you're absolutely right now, so as, as I know, because I was part of all these visits, how many Jews came to any of those talks? We, we know all five of them, I think. <laughs> we know all five, that's right. Yeah. Um, let, let's just close off the Holocaust lens um, thing. I just want to quote from his article because this was so particularly powerful, really poignant for me. He says, the depiction of Palestinians as compulsive Jew haters yes. stems less from Palestinian behaviour than from Jewish trauma. That's right. As the late Israeli scholar Yehuda Elkanah, a Holocaust survivor himself, has observed, what motivates much of Israeli society in its relations with the Palestinians is a particular interpretation of the lessons of the Holocaust. But this Holocaust lens distorts how Palestinians actually behaved, not like gen genocidal Jew haters, but rather like other peoples seeking national rights. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think he exaggerates the Holocaust. Well, how can I put this rightly? They've been persuaded, constantly reinforced to think this way. I mean, uh, there was the Israeli member of the Knesset, I'm always quoting, you might have seen it, uh, uh, what's her name? Um, oh, I always block on her name. Um, I'll think of it in a minute. Uh, Shulamit Aloni. Uh, she was a member of the Knesset. And there's a wonderful interview she did on um, Democracy Now!, where she says, yeah, yeah, the Holocaust, you know, and anti-Semitism. It's the trick we always use to shut up, uh, to silence criticism. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. So that's exactly the right way to sum it up. And, and, and you know, it hardly needs to be said among ourselves, what's the Holocaust got to do with Palestine? You know, um, it's, it's hard to have to say that to, to people because there's no answer to that. What, what, the Palestinians didn't, uh, aren't to blame for, for, for the Holocaust. Why should they have no, to They're just getting blind? punished for it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. exactly. Peter, one of the things that he doesn't really touch on in those 7,000 words, and, you know, it's the hardest topic to broach, arguably, when you're talking about a solution in the one state, is the right of return. That's right. Where do you think he's at with that? I think you're right. I, I've noticed he does mention it a couple of places, but you're right, I don't have a clear sense of what his view is. I, I think he'd probably say, at least my view is that, look, there's no question about the right of return. It's just a right, and you can't just take it away. I mean, it's enshrined in international law. I think everybody understands, though, it's not a simple problem to solve. Um, uh, you know, um, 
uh, I, I think the practical question is one that has to be faced, but you can't start this conversation by taking the, the right away from the Palestinians. Yeah. Uh, that's the, the beginning point. And, and I think that's one of the things Jews have to confront too, among all the other uh, uh, realities and, and historical injustices they have to face. One of them is the right of return. I mean, look, the obvious thing for me to say is they also have to confront the fact that they give every Jew that's got nothing to do with Israel the right to go and live there. I've got more rights than the Palestinians who, who, who are still holding their keys. Yeah. You know, that's the, 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 the pointy end of this, this conversation, that the Jews can't live with that uh, uh, inconsistency and immoral uh, uh, asymmetry. And you can't uh, give every Jew uh, a right that the, the still living Palestinians uh, whose houses are still there. So, okay, that's the, the beginning point. But then there's this very tricky question of, of how to actually deal with it. Um, I've read people that have very sensible views about how this would, would, would work out. I mean, Abu Sita, who was here, uh, Salman Abu Sita, who was here, I mean, he made the point, which I didn't quite know, is that most of the places from which the Palestinians had been evicted and expelled are uninhabited, even inside Israel. Uh, the villages that he was from and the ones that were spilled yeah. into, into Gaza and so on. That was rather interesting because he's made this unbelievable systematic study of every, you know, exiled Palestinian and where they're from and the family and all that. He said, even inside Israel, this is not like displacing people from their houses and so on. So uh, I don't have a clear sense of in practice. I don't know even how many Palestinians will want to actually move back to Palestine. Um, this is an interesting question. So, uh, but I think well, you're, you're right. How, how many Jews actually want to go to Israel? But, That's right. Well, not many. In fact, but, a lot are leaving. A lot, a lot are leaving. But yeah. the, what you, you touched on it, Peter, the reality is you've got the right to. And well, so well, nobody yeah. should deny my right either. Yes. Yeah. And we should repudiate that right. That's the first thing Israel should do. Yeah. Um, and that's part of what, look, Beinart would probably agree because his whole thesis is that you can't uh, con continue to regard this as a Jewish state. A homeland is one thing, and he, his version of Zionism has become, as it was for some people, look, you could move there if it was under um, appropriate conditions rather than swamping the place with these waves of, of Jews and then taking most of the country away. Um, there's, there was some conceptions of Zionism which would be living in harmony with the Palestinians. Uh, that's where he is now. And so he'd probably agree. I mean, that's part of the whole point that it's not, a, it shouldn't be any longer a Jewish state. It should be a homeland where you could move and live if you want to. I think that's a different way of thinking about it. And, yeah, and that's what he's talking about. And in fact, the very first Zionist Herzl, et cetera, were always talking about a homeland. But look, you know, to be fair or to be honest about it is, uh, my understanding of it, they really always intended it to be a state. They always intended okay. to steal the land. Yeah. If you go back, I've been struck by going back to some of these early Zionists. Herzl was quite explicit. He said, um, uh, slowly, I think he's got some word about, uh, discreetly, we should uh, uh, get rid of the yeah. Palestinians. Yeah. Yeah. Ben Gurion, they were much more candid in those days. And in fact, the whole idea of, of Israel, Eretz Israel, was that um, they'll take the lot. And, and so, so they never really understood this as, as sharing it with, with the Palestinians. That's the tragic part of it. Yeah, and they were just much more candid about it. They didn't hide it. They weren't, you know, pretending. And one of the things one says, which I think is really important to point out, he's angry with those Zionists who have pretended to be supporting a two-state solution. Most of the Sydney, you know, and, and other uh, Jewish organisations that pretend to be Zionists, they're always bellyached about, oh, we support a two-state solution, and they'd bugger all to speak up for it when it was being destroyed. Destroyed, yeah. When it was obviously being taken away, you know, hundreds of thousands of uh, settlers uh, over a period. Not a, not a peep. 
about what, what you really need to do to protect the two-state solution. So it was the most cynical, hypocritical behaviour of these people who pretend that they were always supporting it and, and the leading figures in the Jewish community are to be blamed in, in that way. During the week, Peter, I don't know if you saw it, Seth Rogen, who's yeah. Canadian uh, comedian, American comic, very funny guy. He came out and said on a, on a podcast, I was fed a huge amount of lies about Israel. I, saw, I didn't know who Seth Rogen was, but I saw that. And... He does really dumb, silly movies, you know. <laughs> Robert and I's sense of humour, you know. Yeah, <laughs> maybe not you, Peter. We've only got a couple of minutes left. But do you think that's a product of Peter Barnard? Seth Rogen? No, no, with the Barnard, probably came out roughly around the same time. But, you know, for the reasons we've been saying, again, it's another very important uh, uh, public statement along the lines that I was saying before. They've got to wake up to the fact that everything that they've learned from 48 onwards has been a lie. It's amazing even for me, and I'm pretty used to it by now, but when I read about 1948 among these historians, how different, I mean, for example, I was just talking to one of my Jewish friends, the idea is that poor little fledgling Israel was declared on the 15th of May and they were invaded by all these Arabs. They were always militarily, the Israelis, the Jews then, they weren't Israeli. They, they were always militarily superior from beginning to the end in numbers, in training, in armaments. The idea that Israel was vulnerable was just a lie. And the historians are pointing that out. 67, you know, Begin came out and admitted that they weren't really in any danger. It was a preemptive attack, thinking they could now get away with it. Anyway, everything we've ever learned, and that's very tough and hard for the Jewish community to, to, to swallow, that, that everything they've been told, like this Seth Rogen guy is saying, that's, that's, that's quite a, a demand. Yeah. That's the end of the show. Thank you so very much, Peter, for joining us once again. Thank you for the chance to talk with you. Thanks, Peter. We'll, we'll have you again. Good on you, Robert. Nice talking to you too. Thanks. Fantastic. And wasn't that great to listen to Peter Slezak? Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, share the podcast, and remember, free Palestine.